Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Chanting is a refuge, first and foremost. It's the place where I can go to adjust myself from being pulled away in all kinds of directions. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is Ramdev Dale Borglum on my Healing at the Edge podcast channel. And I'm so very happy today to welcome Nina Rao, a guru sister who is a devotional singer. She has two albums, Antarayami and Anubhav. She is Krishna Das's assistant, much more than his business manager. He would not be Krishna Das without Nina. <laughs> you can tell him I said that. And we can tell Krishna Das stories today, too, if we want and get him in a little bit of trouble, possibly. Anyway, I wanted to talk to Nina about chanting, about devotion, about Sidima, and her relationship with working with dying as part of her spiritual practice. And why don't I just start the ball rolling by mentioning, for me, my main practice is really saying mantra. I, I've 
I teach Buddhist meditation. It's kind of hard to teach mantra because there's not too much to talk about. And I remember when I was leaving India uh, and I came to Maharaji and said, Maharaji, I used to be a scientist and I'm going back to America. I don't want to be a scientist. What are your instructions for me? And he said, just keep saying the mantra I gave you. <laughs> he didn't say become a therapist or work with the dais that just keep saying the mantra. And, but as part of a, being a meditation teacher, I've begun to notice that mantras can be said at different levels, at the Hinayana, Theravada level of invocation, reaching out on the, the more uh, relational, devotional level, I'm in relationship with God, and then Tantra, where the word itself is God where you're not using the word as a vehicle, the word is it. And then finally, one disappears into non-duality and it's all the words. And I'm sure it's rather similar in, in singing. One of the differences is when you're chanting, you're often chanting with a lot of other people. So there's this group thing. And I just love to hear you talk about different levels of your, your being, your core, your heart being involved in chanting. Thanks, Ramdev. I love that Maharaji said that to you. Just chant your mantra. Perfect prescription. Um, <clears throat> actually, Siddhima said the same thing to me when I went to uh, Kenchi in 1998. And I saw, said to Ma, I said, Ma, what seva can I do? And she said, chanting the name is the best seva that you can do. And so I've taken that to heart. And luckily for me, I... That's the practice that I love doing. Um, you know, I've tried meditation and, you know, of course, we can enter into a meditative mode, but that's not my entryway is not to sit down to meditate. My, my entry is to sit down to chant. Mm. And um, I've always been interested in chanting. I think when I look back now from a really young age, when my father used to, uh, my grandfather, sorry, not my father, my grandfather used to chant and I first heard him chant when I was a young girl. And I was very drawn to the feelings that arose by hearing what he was chanting. But also, like you were saying, chanting in a community where we had our village would come over to the house, people from the village, and we would chant together. And I only did it a couple of times before my grandfather uh, passed away. So we didn't have much chance to do it. But that feeling stayed with me. And as you know, in India, you know, chanting happens at the drop of a hat for anything. It's always going on in households, temples, any auspicious occasion. Um, sadhus are walking on the street, chanting the name, you know, and you hear it. And you hear the name even in everyday life. You know, you have Sri Ram auto mechanics and um, JMA insurance. Like, you know, it's <laughs> everywhere. The name is everywhere. It's right. so beautiful. Um, but honestly, I really began chanting as a practice uh, as an adult when I first heard Krishna Das chanting in 1996. And it was completely by accident. I had gone to a yoga retreat. And when I heard him sing, I didn't know anything about him. I had no idea what was going to happen, except that there was satsang that, that night and this fellow Krishnadas was going to come chant. And when he 
walked in the door. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. I just recognized a little photo of Maharaji and Hanumanji on the side of the little table on the side. And he sat down and I had stayed in the back of the room because I wanted to just run out, <laughs> truth be told. And um, I heard him chant and literally three hours later, I was sitting right in front of him, you know, that first spot right in front of the harmonium. And I was transported back to that place, that place in my cellular memory that came from even before I heard my grandfather chant, mm. where the mantra is already invoking in within us. And when I heard him chant, I aligned with that space again. I can say all these things now. I didn't understand what that was mm. at the time. All I knew is that I wanted to chant forevermore. Mm. <laughs> That's what it seemed like then. And it still seems like that. And it's now however many years later. So um, to answer your question, you know, I first started chanting as Kirtan. So we're singing uh, with a melody. And I decided to chant at home because I couldn't be with Krishna Das all the time. He would chant once a week. And when I heard him chant, it sort of brought back those memories of chanting with my grandfather. Uh -huh. And I have no musical background. I never studied music. I, I don't really know how to play a harmonium. I have no voice training, but I knew that I wanted to chant. And that's sort of how my grandfather chanted. He was a natural um, chanter. He didn't have any training in music, but he could play and sing anything, which I can't, but he could. And what I found was at the very start, and I think it continues to be so for me, is that the chanting is a refuge, first and foremost. It's the place where I can go to adjust myself from being pulled away in all kinds of directions with whatever thoughts and emotions might be going through me that I know I have to come away from or that are making me sort of unproductive or emotionally reactive or sending me down into some kind of spiral mm. or even very simply to just start my day mm. for no other reason except like you have to have tea in the morning to wake up. How do I start my day is to start by chanting. And I found that it's an amazing reset, just like stopping for one second and just breathe. Just breathe, right? We all do that. So it's only after chanting now for so many years that I've looked into the different ways in which people relate to chanting. What does it mean? What are these names that we're chanting? Um, and as you and I were talking about before, you know, there are many poet saints from India who, including Namdev, for example, who've talked about how the name is no separate from this divinity or the sacred space from which and that which we are invoking. They're not different. But what's different is where we're coming to it from because that has to do with our own emotional makeup at that moment mm. at that time so some days when I sit down to chant it's like I'm just doing it because it's part of my discipline it's part of my practice other days it's because I really don't know what else to do 
that's going to be useful for me or anyone. So <laughs> let me just do this. I know the and feeling. You right? And then there are days when you just feel devotional. What does that mean to feel devotional? Some kind of juicy feeling of connectedness. And who are we feeling connected to? What are we feeling connected to? That changes also every day. Now you, um, I'd like to ask, ask you actually, if you can share with us a little bit of your, the way in which you started with your practice and Maharaji and so on. But for me, it was um, first connecting with Maharaji through hearing Krishna Das chant, because I never met Maharaji in the body. Right. And I knew that whatever whatever presence I was feeling in Krishna Das's chanting is that space that I wanted to be in all the time. And he seemed so connected with it because by the time I was singing with him, it was already decades after Maharaji had left the body. Right. And yet here we were, a room full of people in that space. But it was no different than the space that I felt as a child chanting these mantras as well. It's just Krishnadas had a name. He had Maharaji, had a body, had a picture. I could had a place, something that I could identify with. So I decided to go to Kenchi, even though Maharaji wasn't there anymore. I thought if I at least maybe go, I love temples because part of my background. I thought I would go back see what it was like for all of you, all of the people who were there. And that was where I met Ma. And Ma being so completely, completely immersed in, in Maharaji in such a way that she wasn't even separate from him. Mm. The same feelings arose. Mm. And, but now my connection with her after all these years of having had a personal relationship with her, the form of this presence, if I need to bring her to mind, is in the way she is, the way I feel when I'm with her, the way that she looked, the sound of her voice. You know, I have all those. Mm -hmm. But more than anything, and this is what she said to me, she said, you know, the name is what is going to the name the name is no different from maharaji the name is no different from hanuman the name is no different from devi the name is no different from maharaji the name is no different from ram and the only way in this day and age in this kali yuga for us to connect with this divinity is chanting of the name and um so my experience with the chanting has been, and I do different types of chanting. I don't only sing kirtan, but my own personal practice is also Vedic chanting, where we're not really singing, we're not using any um, musical instruments. But again, it's mantra repetition mm. and using particular sounds. That is the way in which I can connect with a sense of clarity, or at least I have the possibility of having some clarity if I focus on the mantra. And as I keep doing the practice, let go of whatever else might arise in, in the form of thoughts mm. or obstructive 
emotions or feelings. Try to let go of that and just try to come back to the mantra each time over and over again. And I don't really think very much about what is the mantra? Is it God? Is it different? It's I'm nowhere in that place where I can even approach it from there. This is I'm at elementary school level where all I can do is get here, sit here, sit down and try to start doing the practice and then let the mantra do whatever it is that mm-hmm. it's going to do because it has that power. So that's a long answer to maybe I think your question was. <laughs> well, it wasn't really a question. I mean, I I was just uh, I'm kind of a Dharma teacher and I I've just felt it's so hard to just teach teach saying the mantra because there are there are a lot of people. I mean, I just had a client who died. I, I had two clients actually right in a row. Uh, one of them was uh, a secular Jew from New York who had never had a devotional bone in her body and ended up uh, trying to meditate. She moved to California, came to Spirit Rock and stuff and got uh, metastatic lung cancer and came to me. And I kept trying to explain non-duality to her. She could never get it. And as she was dying, she said, my spiritual life has been a failure. And and uh, she actually was the first person I was around that availed herself of the medical aid and dying act where she took her own life, really. And it just, it really touched me that without having the name, without having something as robust as the mantra that you can use at any point, then she was really left with not, with, 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 without a practice that really served her. And two or three days after she died, this other woman called me up who was dying, who had, she was a, a, a psychologist. She had done tons of meditating. She had done tons of devotional practice. She had done a lot of long retreats. And she said exactly the same thing. She said, my spiritual life has been a failure because she thought she was supposed to get something, yeah. something. And right at that point, I found this, this poem by Rumi where he's saying, your yearning is the answer, right? That it's not like God's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, you're doing a great job there. Here's, here's the gift. It's it's just the yearning itself, the question itself is the response. And it's just, uh, and there's a lovely poem by St. John of the Cross where he talks about what is grace? Grace is everything. And he said, imagine, imagine being in your beloved's arms. You feel that grace. He said, existence is my arms. Mm-hmm. That everything is my arms. So... Uh, I try to combine, so people come to me for, for teaching, and some of them are devotional, some love Maharaji, some are Buddhist, some are atheists, <laughs> so it makes life a little more difficult. Yeah. But but I keep coming back to my practice is, is my heart practice. And if you would bear with me, I'd like to tell two stories that are kind of combined. Yes. So, so I went to India, I guess it was 1987, and I was up at Kenshi, and I said to Siddhi Ma, I'd like to go on a pilgrimage to Badrinath and Kedarnath. She said, that's wonderful. And she said, when you go to Badrinath, you will have a glimpse. 
I had no idea what she meant by that, right? So it was the end of the season. It was getting really cold up in Badrinath and Kedarnath. These are two important pilgrimage places, Badrinath to Lord Badri, an incarnation of Vishnu and Kedarnath, a Shiva temple even higher up in the mountains. So I got to Badrinath. And there's very few people there because it was getting cold. There's a big temple, and I would sit in the back during RT. And one night I was just sitting in the back. There's maybe like five or six people, the Pujaris up doing his thing. And all of a sudden, this statue, which was basically one of those, it was like a painted rock with eyeballs, kind of, right? It was like a very crude statue. All of a sudden, it was God. It's like all of a sudden, the Murti became completely the incarnation, right? And I was much more impressed that she told me this was going to happen than it actually that it happened to me, right? That she knew that like a week before that this was going to happen to me. I thought that was just so remarkable. Another thing that happened when I was driving on this pilgrimage, I was on a bus, a local bus, completely crowded bus i was shoved against the the wall the side of the bus started raining the window was broken and all the dirt from the top of the bus was showering down on my right shoulder and it was like (laughs) and there were people just pushing against me and the physical plane was just like completely unpleasant and i was just saying my mantra i was in bliss you know it's just like you can't make life any better in, in the body, but the, but, but the name is available. The name is available. But then the story, here's the, the interesting story. So Krishna shows up, up at Kenshi after he came back from the pilgrimage. He was having a really hard time. And this is even something we could talk about because Maharaji leaving his body bothered me less than most anybody else. Because for me, it was much more of an inner thing. Krishna Obviously, he was the pujari at the Durga temple, and he had this very intimate personal relationship with Maharshi's body, which I had to a certain extent, but not certainly to the extent that he did. And so he was he was like really, really depressed. And I went to Sidima and kind of tattled on him and said, this guy's having a hard time. You got to fluff him up a little bit. And she did. And, and he somehow he felt... Maharaj again. But anyway, we took a car down to Delhi and we had a train ticket to go to Dada's house, an overnight train ticket. But that was the day that Mrs. Gandhi got assassinated. So Krishnas and I were in a taxi cab in Delhi driving around. And over the radio came the news that she had been shot 23 times and was in an, in an Indian hospital. I said, Krishnas, if anybody is in an Indian hospital with 23 holes in them, they are dead. There's, there's just, they're, they're stalling for time, which turned out to be true. So that night we were going to have dinner at Tukaram's house, who's a devotee from Canada, who was doing business in Delhi. And uh, we were kind of concerned because as you, it's kind of a complicated story, but the Sikhs wanted a separate state and they were stockpiling weapons in the Golden Temple and Indira Gandhi sent the army into the Golden Temple and they shot the place up and got the bombs and the guns. And the Sikhs were very unhappy that she desecrated their their holiest shrine. So her Sikh bodyguards assassinated her. And the Sikhs started celebrating that she was dead and the Hindus were not happy that they were celebrating. So there's a lot of tension. 
And we uh, were concerned about driving to the train station. So Tukaram called his business partner, whose grandfather was the prime minister's secretary, and said, is it safe for my friends to travel? I said, completely safe. The army's in control. The police are out there. Don't worry about a thing. So we we got one of these, uh, Tukaram had two cars, two drivers. We got the Hindu driver, not coincidentally, I'm sure. And we're driving to the train station. We come around a corner. There's a big boulevard. And there's a mob of young men who are stopping cars. And if there were Hindus, they would let you through. And if they were Sikhs, they would kill you. And there were bodies lying all over. There were cars on fire and motor scooters scattered about, smoke coming out of a building. And here's a car with two Americans. So they start arguing whether they should kill us or not. Whole big there, were no army? There, there was no army or anybody around? <laughs> Nobody at all. So okay. we're, we're surrounded by this mob and they're arguing if they should kill us, right? And I just felt just complete terror. And then I realized that there's nothing I could do. There was two of us and dozens and dozens of these angry young men. And I started saying my mantra and I went into this bliss state. It was like maybe the closest I was to Maharaja on that whole trip. You know, it was just like total surrender. It's Baba, it's just you and me in the name here, like whatever happens. And it's just like, and uh, at that point, a young Sikh boy came driving up on a bicycle and the mob turned toward him and the driver just drove away. And Krishnadas felt that that was Maharaji sent that boy or he was that boy or something like that. And, and that we, we were able to, to uh, not be killed. So. I haven't actually heard that story. Um, I didn't know about this. I was actually in Mumbai at that time when, when all of this happened. It was a difficult time. Very difficult time. And, you know, it's complicated because it's, I think it's, it's important to not generalize and say all Sikhs and all Hindus, because there were definitely factions. Oh, certainly, know? certainly. I, I yeah. didn't mean to imply that. No, no, I know. I just wanted to just reiterate that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, very difficult time. I mean, you know, so many times things happen and people say, oh, that was Maharaji. But like you said in the beginning, you know, everything is grace. Everything is Maharaji. Everything is Ma. It's like, how are we going to see it? through their eyes, the way they see it. How are we going to do that? And how do you think we're going to do that? I mean, I think that that's really what our spiritual evolution is. And whatever practice we do is, I remember once I, I went to my therapist and I was talking to, to him about Siddhima and, and I was just saying, wow, she just, you know, there isn't anything that she cannot withstand with the openness and grace. And I wouldn't even say positivity. It's just pure acceptance right. and deepest faith, you know. And surrender. everything, a surrender and auspiciousness. And my therapist said to me, he said, well, you can be her, you know. And I remember when he said that to me, I was horrified. Because I said, how, how could you say such a thing? Like how, you know, like that's just, 
that's impossible. And then I thought about it. And I thought, well, what else are we doing here? I don't know how many, you know, eons and lifetimes it'll take. But this was the Buddha's journey, you know, and he happened to be at that point in life. And Ma was at this point in her life. And so we can only look in that direction. And each step that we take in that direction, we can feel that we're on the right path. And that's good enough for me. And to me, that's the function of the guru. Yeah. That no matter where you are, you realize that they're relating to the wholeness in you, that they know how you have doubt and and concern and and wavering faith and all kinds of things. But uh, there's this, there's this, I forget if it's Kabir or Hafiz or Rumi, one of the big three there, they said something like, any picture you paint of God that makes you sad is not the true picture. Uh-huh. That, that, that any notion of God has to make you happy. And God is the guru, of course. So uh, even when we have doubt, even when we have fear, that, that that's just the next perfect step on coming home. And uh, that's what was so remarkable about being around Maharaji day after day after day, where he never wavered for an instant in resting in total acceptance of who I was. And finally, I got that I was beginning to accept that, okay, there is this part of me, but it was harder to accept that this really neurotic person next to me was also God. I'm not going to mention any names. <laughs> but in the beginning, there were a lot of strong egos there. And I'm, I'm kind of making a joke here. But I mean, it, it, it was a real process to, to accept being loved, to accept being loved. Yeah, And that's ongoing. I mean, for me, it's ongoing still. You know, I, I'm still amazed when to receive something. And learning better, you know, to to be able to receive um, friendship mm. and um, and feel like it's not a question of deserving it or not. It just is, you know, love just is. And yeah. we are that. Yeah. But, you know, just going back to what you were saying about God and Guru Ramdev, um, you know, a lot of people ask me all the time, what do you do? How do I find a guru? And I, the thing that I've learned from being with Siddhima, and I feel that whatever my samskaras were, I was able to be with her. But the thing that I've learned, and people say this all the time, is that our life is our guru. Like everything is right in front of us. We just have to be able to open our eyes and have this awareness of all that in order to shed light on the dark places. And that's where I think that the chanting of the name is most helpful because chanting of the name turns us in that direction, like gives us that ability to see that. Because not everybody's going to have a guru in the body. 
but you still have that feeling of connectedness or openness. Everybody has it. In some, you know, it could be in any moment in their life. They every, in, I feel that everyone is devotional. It's just that we're not looking in the right places at the right time um, for what we for what we need. But if we were able to nat- find that natural place inside of us where you can witness or have an awareness. I love the phrase that Ramdas used to use, which is cultivating loving awareness. You know, then you're seen through the guru's eyes. That's how it feels to me. I, I completely hear you. I completely agree with that. But, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's one of the only things that still confuses me in terms of my mind. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a complete representation of everything I know. Mm-hmm. But the, the one thing that kind of confuses me, and I think it's the place from which the question these people bring to you about how do I find yeah. my guru, is that certainly... Not everybody finds a guru in form, and certainly it's all the guru, and we're we're being guided moment to moment to moment. But there are also all these stories about Maharaji taking healing people and taking people's karma away, and somebody's dying, and he eats puris, he eats the chapatis and dal for them, so that they don't have that when they had this desire at the end of their life, they don't have to reincarnate again. And he 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 had the cook make the dal and chapatis before the guy was actually dying. So at the moment yeah. he was dying, Maharaj is eating the dal and chapatis. And, and so stories like that are very compelling for people who don't have a guru in form. That, oh, these select people who have found Siddhima or Maharaji or Anandamaya or whoever it is. And I, I could just say that there's such a profound comfort in me, such a a deep sense of gratitude that I actually found Maharaji's feet in this life. Okay. And, and it's hard. It, I mean, I, once again, I completely agree with what you said, but for somebody who hasn't had that experience and feels kind of adrift in the world, uh, I mean, like that story I told about being in the taxi cab, if, if I hadn't, been with Maharaji the week before, it might have been a, a, a very different experience for me, surrounded by a mob that was trying to decide if they wanted to kill me or not. Maybe, maybe. But if we want to, I think what's important to understand is that these beings, whether we remember them or not, are doing their work. So even if somebody has not met Maharaji, we don't know what they're up to. We don't know what they're doing. And the thing is, when I was with Ma, there were no miracles in that way. The greatest miracle for, from my point of view in, in meeting Siddhima and being with her is understanding that through practice, you can open your heart and you can find that place of comfort and well-being through doing practice and allowing yourself and allowing life to unfold and accept whatever comes to you in a better way than if you didn't do practice. This is her greatest gift for me. It's a very great gift. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone can have that. Everyone can have that. 
whether they've met a guru in the body or not. And she, re, I mean, I, I, I believe that 100%. The, the wonderful Vipassana teacher, Joseph Goldstein, said, Maharaji must have been a very great teacher because he had all the most difficult students. <laughs> <laughs> so so maybe, maybe he's everybody's guru, but the people that had to drag their butts to India and get hepatitis and malaria and God knows what else. Those were the ones that needed extra special. <laughs> Not only that, I mean, you share your stories with us and we hear them and we remember yeah. what we didn't even know that we knew. Important. And it's the same for when we read stories of saints, you know, other saints who've left the body and we're reading stories of their from their mm-hmm. disciples, like, uh, Ramakrishna, Raman Marshi, Ananda Maima, you know, all the great beings and the way you read uh, poetry, you know, you've been, you've quoted Rumi so many times already. And we're, he, we're getting that transmission through them. Uh, let's just take a few moments to change direction here. And I would say that I've also had Darshan by being at the bedside of people who are dying. And with very few exceptions, the most beautiful, at least Americans that I've ever met are people who are almost dead because they're completely willing to be themselves. I'm not saying I'm rich, I'm poor, I'm beautiful, I'm not so beautiful. I'm that, that with the right support or the right background, somebody is being essentialized. Somebody is letting go of identity and beginning to identify with what's beyond that which changes. And uh, Trungpa Rinpoche said that until one comes into intimate contact with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante. (laughs) So to me, in this very intense and strange time in which we're living. The most powerful spiritual practice is an inner practice of the name or of meditation or chanting or whatever is the one that uh, takes you. Combine though with some relationship with death, some some realization that you know in your bones that you're going to die. And that this moment is precious, that that there's this motivating truth in Tibetan Buddhism. You're going to die, but you don't know when. And you and I are assuming that we're almost done with the podcast and we're going to turn the microphones off and get up and the next thing's going to happen. And it almost certainly will statistically. But if we really didn't know that this moment with Ramdev and Nina, and one of, it might be the last moment for one of us, how much, how much would we open to each other and let Maharaji pour through and Ma pour through. And, and to me, people think, some people kind of, I think, have some notion I'm some kind of strange Mother Teresa in drag or something like that. And I, I'm really doing this because I want to wake up. I'm doing this because when I'm around dying people, it pulls out the best in me. You know, that, that if I'm with somebody who might not be alive tomorrow, and I'm I'm kind of distracted or something like that. It it hurts my heart. And I was curious what what drew you to uh, doing this work. 
Yeah, I'm I'm so with you on what you're saying. Um, I think that was a lot of my um, experience. And, you know, I didn't realize that I wanted to do this work until later in my life. But my first memory of death in this way and the closeness of death to me and the space that it brought me into just by virtue of it being what it is in somebody else was um, when my grandfather died, the same grandfather who taught me how to chant. And, you know, in India, we treat bodies very differently. Um, They are bathed by the family. You keep the body in the house and everybody comes and you do an overnight vigil and people can come and chant and sit and allow the body to transition, uh, uh, the soul to transition. And we ha- it's typically washing the body is a male's job in the family. And our family is full of women. <laughs> there were no men around. So I said, I'll do it. I'll do it. So um, in the bathroom, you know, in India, there's just a floor most of the time. And I remember just, Looking at my, just watching my grandfather. Now, I had been in the hospital with him when he died. He had pneumonia, so he they'd had him on a ventilator and whatnot. And then finally, the doctor said, okay, it's time. You know, we can, it's time to, to, to remove the ventilator. He's going to go. And all that I wanted to do was sit with him because there was something about the space that he was in, like you were saying. And I had seen that over the progression of the week. He had Alzheimer's, so it was also a little hard to know where he was at. But somehow, closer to the time that he died, I felt like even that fell away somehow. And just his pure essence or his pure presence, his soul being was right there. And I could feel it. This was not my, you know, it was, I just felt it. I didn't even understand really what was going on. What a blessing. Yeah. And so from there to go to then into the next practical phase of, you know, washing the body and I'm looking at him and saying, but that's, it's not you anymore. You know, you're, it's not you. Now you live inside of me as how I remember you, how I experienced you. And then we sat up all night and we did the vigil and, and then he was taken to the cremation grounds and the men did their whatever they had to do because women couldn't go there. So that that was my first experience of being around a person like that, um, seeing them through. And then any other t- opportunity that arose that I could be with a body, I liked, I found myself wanting to be there because there was something in that space that opened up. It just was a feeling that I have. I I don't know. I can't put it into words really, but I became more present in that space with Mm. them. And then when Ram Das, when I heard about Ram Das and I, I read Be Here Now for the first time and I started hearing more about the way he talked about death and, and then, you know, the beautiful phrase, you know, we're all just walking each other home and, um, and how much death is part of living. And, 
in India, we still think about it that way. It's different here in the West because I have had to uh, deal with it in that way too. But I love the closeness of it. And, you know, there have obviously been some tragic deaths in our family, two young children dying, and then, you know, all kinds of things. Everybody's had that experience. So what stands in between us living and dying is the fear that connects the two. How do we... If we truly live in the moment, there isn't actually fear, like right here, right now. So how do we get there? And the more we are, I found when I'm with people who are dying is that they are letting go in a certain way. A lot of people have fear of dying, of course, but they're letting, they've somehow naturally, like the universe allows them to let go in a certain Mm. way drop all the stories, drop the whatever, and then you're with pure being. And that is very comforting to me. And so I I don't know. I, I went to a retreat with uh, Roshi Joan Halifax and, and Frank Ostaseski. And I was really inspired by the way they talked about their work. And I happened to meet um, a, a woman at the retreat. Who, and I thought, how can I do this? that in a way that would be helpful for people other than my family and friends who I know and I could be with them. And so I met this woman who was already doing hospice work for visiting nurses of New York. So I, I, I did their training. I didn't know about you. <laughs> and, um, and so I, you know, I did the training and I started right away and it was just most beautiful journey. I had one patient before COVID and then after that, I couldn't be with anybody in person. So now I'm working with a woman through Zoom, which is really not so easy. <laughs> and um, But I, I said to my supervisor that I really think I want to wait until I can be in person with, with people because there's something about energetically also being close. Mm-hmm. Um but she said, you know, there's an Indian woman who really wants to talk to somebody who can speak Kannada or Hindi, which is what I speak. And I thought, okay, so Maharaji is bringing, you know, this is a, a real opportunity for me. So mm-hmm. I'm doing that with her. And I'm hoping now that things after COVID, you know, we can be with people together. But so many beautiful ways, a good friend of ours in our satsang, her, her son was dying and she opened up his whole dying process for us you know, over Facebook. And I, I found myself again, like wanting to enter, like be, come alongside, as Roshi Jones says. It's a very beautiful way to talk about it. So I don't, there's no other reason other than like you said, it's like, yeah, I find it beneficial for me. And even though my patients that I've been with are not practitioners at all um, with what I do, I find that if I'm able to invoke the chant sort of silently within myself. So the one patient I was with who at first was talking to me and then wasn't, he had gone, you know, crossed over to the side of like moving out of this body. You know, his wife, she said, I know you're praying over him. She couldn't, she didn't, I wasn't saying anything. I know you're praying over him. This is good. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't even know if that's what I was doing, but that's that 
chant that is ever self-invoking inside of us was going on all the time. This has been such a rich conversation. I'd like to thank you so much. Uh, I had meant to plug this one thing and I'll do it now. Uh, a while back, somebody turned me on to this podcast that Nina had done, Nina Rao guest podcast number 65 on the Be Here Now Network, where you were talking with Radha Baum and Parvati Marcus and Mirabai Bush about three women, obviously, about being with Maharaji. And it, it really struck me, maybe it's because all of you were women or something, but it really struck me that I'd never heard such an intimate and uh, even accurate description of what it was like to find Maharaji. Mm. It, it was such a gift. And the way you drew them out was so beautiful. I really highly recommend that for anybody who'd like a hit of Maharaji. <laughs> and uh, are, are there any programs that you're doing, Nina, that people could hook into? Well, I want to also mention that um, I also loved that podcast because, you know, many of us have wanted to hear women's stories and Parvati's done um, such a good service also in creating Love Everyone, you know, so we could hear everybody's story through the book. But to hear them speak was was beautiful. I'm going to actually release another podcast that I did with Mirabai Bush and, and Girija Brilliant okay. as well. The two of them talking about that. But Programs, yes, there are programs, lots of programs. <laughs> Everything's on ninaraochant.com. But yeah, okay. I'm going to do a retreat soon in Esalen, and there's just ongoing stuff all the time. Thank, thank you for asking. Thank you so much for being with me, for being with us, sharing the depth of your heart. And uh, you, Ramdev, for the work that you're doing too. It's very inspiring. Touching the Guru's feet, so glad to be with you. Thank you. <laughs>